Welcome to the Why It Works podcast. I'm Joe Kwan, your host. Together, we'll pull back the curtain to reveal the hidden principles behind why things work. Things work for a reason. Let's find out why. Today's podcast is sponsored by Mizzen and Maine, next generation dress shirts that breathe, stretch, and wick away moisture. They require no ironing, no dry cleaning, and are machine washable. For a limited time, on orders of over $100, listeners of Why It Works will receive $25 off. To receive your discount, go to the show notes at www.joquanjo.com slash whyitworks and click on the Mizzen and Main link in the sponsor section. Here with us today is Kirsten Rickert, CEO of Rickert Innovation Consulting a firm that brings together strategy and innovation to help leaders spark change. An innovation catalyst, Kirsten leads change efforts for organizations. Kirsten received her master's degree in education from Teachers College at Columbia University and her training in innovation and facilitation methods from SIT, Systematic Inventive Thinking, and TOP, Technology of Participation. We speak to Kirsten from her home in central New Jersey. Welcome, Kirsten, to the Why It Works podcast, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Joe. I'm so excited. Great. So we met through your partner in crime and podcast co-host, Jeff Eichler, and I really had a blast as a guest on your show. One thing I enjoy about your Getting Unstuck podcast is learning a bit about your innovation and your approach to it, which is a hot topic these days. I know you probably work with a lot of people of various levels of experience, and I was wondering, what are some common misconceptions that you find yourself coming across time and time again? Sure. I think the biggest one that people have, like sort of front as soon as they hear, oh, you know, we're going to focus on innovation, is people tend to consider themselves creative people. Or, hey, you know, I'm not that creative, or I am not a creative person. And so people kind of self-screen when they're thinking about innovation, like, yes, that's me, or no, that's not me. And that's a really limiting belief. It's, it's not accurate at all. And people tend to think of their own creativity as being an established level. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand that by adjusting their own behavior or their environment, you can really bring out creativity or limit it. And so people think of it as a black or white, I have it, I don't have it kind of thing. And that's one of the major things that people need to break through when they're first starting about to think about innovation. Yeah, I find it so fascinating how we do that in a lot of areas, right? It's like sometimes we don't realize how powerful or valuable we are. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because we don't do the things that, you know, would expose that or, or, or allow us to, to gain that uh, impact. Yeah, I've seen that when it comes to things like leadership. I'm a leader. Mm-hmm. I'm not a leader. When it comes to things like I'm organized, I'm not organized, there are these categories that we tend to have in our head. And that really prevents us, even if you define yourself as a creative person, you're thinking of it as a a constant or a flat. You don't understand that sometimes you're a lot more creative or sometimes in your creativity, you can learn things that will help you be more practical about it. So 
when I work with people, I'm always kind of bopping back and forth between practicality and creativity or ideation and implementation. Great. Let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us what you do, but tell us as if you were explaining it to a five-year-old. So I work with people and with teams to come up with new ideas and to use those ideas to solve the problems that they have or, or to push themselves to go even further doing something that they want to get done. That's great. I'm a big fan of the work you do for many reasons, but one reason stands out the most for me. I think it's so amazing that you work with professionals to teach them about innovation in a way that challenges their own beliefs, just like we've been talking about, whether they're innovative or not, and really helps them to grow and improve. That must be incredibly satisfying. It is. It's a joy. And it's something that when you look back over the course of your life, I can see these wonderful moments where that calling was introduced. But most recently, it's been exciting to spend 100% of my professional time doing that, um, helping teams and organizations and individuals think, think of things and do things differently. I am so happy you're here today. And let me tell you why. Now, I think most companies now acknowledge the power of innovation and, and the usefulness of it. But a lot of people still feel held back from it themselves. What, what sort of things stop people from doing more of it themselves? I think, so there's the kind of side of it that is the your knee-jerk reaction or your, your critical self. And I think part of the thing that's a little weird right now is that, like you said, corporate America and even in a general understanding of things really thinks that innovation is a good thing. But it's almost like the word innovation is tossed into things to make them cooler or sexier or more cutting edge. And so it becomes one of those blah, blah words. And so people have that inevitable rolling your eyes feeling towards it. It's like when people say strategy or synergy or those <laughs> kinds of buzzwords that are just meaningless and empty because ultimately innovation is very cool and people are attracted to it. But like you said, there are blocks to it. And part of, part of what I do when I work with organizations and, and corporations to unlock potential is to acknowledge that people have, well, PTSD sometimes when it comes to, oh, we're going to come up with ideas that are really cool, or we're going to really come up with new ways to do this and, and be innovative, because there's a lot of aspects of organizations that shut things down that actually are designed to maintain the status quo. And without acknowledging that and giving people openings to unlock that, you're basically telling people that they're kind of, I don't know, machines. Like, mm -hmm. well, it's, it's like, oh, well, all I really want out of you is to be a cog in my, in my industrial machine. And that's not why people are motivated to work. I mean, work is about purpose and meaning and mastery. And innovation allows all, for all of that, but 
a lot of times there's a sort of approach avoidance things that happens when it comes to thinking of how to be more innovative as an organization. Now, that's the first time I've heard that. I really love what you said about innovation actually helping with engagement as well. People feeling that, hey, I'm not just here to punch numbers or, you know, take something from A to B. I, I, I can contribute. I have ideas. I think maybe that's something that's uh, overlooked. It's not just about creating the next cool app or something that your competitors don't have. It's about making the most of your people, which actually bring, helps them bring their best to work every day as well. Exactly. That is exactly what we're trying to cultivate here. And there's always whatever it is that you're trying to solve for. Like sometimes you already know the problem you're trying to solve for. You already know that you want to reinvent a particular thing. But sometimes it's that spontaneous uh, improvements and adaptations that people infuse into their daily lives and into their daily practices that make a big difference. Okay. Love Him or Hate Him, the subject of this next clip, has left an indelible mark on the way we think about innovation. Okay, let's go back to what you were saying before. This thing is for the everyman, right? That's our end user. It's the school teacher. It's the garbage man. It's the kid. It's some grandma out in Nebraska, right? So we need to make this thing simple. It's got to work like like an appliance. Hey, Jeff. Steve Jobs is here. Since um, you weren't around, uh, some of the project leads were having a meeting with Motorola. Why exactly are you here? I'm here to help build the Macintosh. Uh, I'm not sure that that's practical for us. We're actually trying to avoid this project becoming another overbloated disaster. <sighs> okay, Jeff. You got my attention. Look, Steve, you didn't want to be involved back when we started this thing, and that was fine by me. I just wanted you to cut the checks. Be involved. Just don't turn Macintosh into a measure of revenge for you. Everyone knows about your fallout with Team Lisa, so trust me when I say we're doing fine. Okay, Jeff. Let's get a couple things straight. We don't do fine. And we don't accept things the way that they are. And we don't stop innovating. Now, your machine lacks power. And your little interface, it needs work. And I'm here to help with that. Now, I'm not trying to take Macintosh away from you. I want you on this team. But you can either get on board or you can get the fuck out. What jumped out at you here, Kirsten? So you started by saying this is the classic love it or hate it. And I think that the Steve Jobs mythos or the story there is the great man's story. There's a leader 
who comes in and revolutionizes a whole industry by the power of his will and his vision to not accept things the way they are uh, and not be happy with fine, all of which is great. And I think it's also distancing for some people. How so? Uh, well, in that video, you are hearing his passion. You're mm -hmm. hearing his commitment to innovation. And you're hearing his not putting up with, you know, baloney <laughs> about the status quo. And okay. all of that is absolutely needed to make those leaps, to make those jumps. Okay. Right? Sure. But what that story is not telling in that particular moment mm -hmm. is that this is something that everyone could participate in. When you, when you think about innovation as innovation is Steve Jobs or innovation is Einstein or innovation is Thomas Edison, you're looking at who are the people and what are they like? What are the traits of someone who is a great innovator? And while that's really important and interesting, it's only part of that because the, the movie also later shows him collecting different people from all different parts of the organization mm -hmm. and listening to people's input. One of the things that he talks about, when I look at that, what resonates with me more so than, hey, you got to be like a bit of a jerk <laughs> to be an innovator, right? What resonates with me is his ability to call upon his team's understanding of who they're trying to serve. Right. So he says, he's standing there um, talking to his team at the beginning of that clip, and he says, we are trying to create something that is for every man. And at the time, computers were, you know, for for businesses and mukti mucks and technical folk and he says we want to we want to we want the grandma in nebraska to love this thing to feel mm -hmm. connected to this thing mm -hmm. and that's the part to me that resonates so much from this is the more you can help your team imagine who you're trying to serve or who you could serve with the new innovation the more you're bringing out all of their strengths and ideas well, what I love about what you're saying, uh, and it's a somewhat sort of adjacent or related idea, is that innovation doesn't happen like this total random thing, like you're throwing darts and here's the one that hits. Like there's a certain amount of focus that is involved in understanding what you're trying to do. And then the innovation helps you fulfill that focus. It's not just that you're blindly trying out different things and seeing what sticks. I wouldn't really call that innovation. I would call that you know, a Hail Mary and praying for good luck. Yeah. When they tell innovation stories, a lot of times when they talk about three, three M's of like post-it note, uh, sticky glue. Yes. They, they talk about that like a random innovation, mm -hmm. but actually when you dig into that story a little bit, he was looking the, the, the chemist who worked on that was looking for a very strong glue. 
and he had the accident of finding a very weak glue, mm-hmm. right? So even in that scenario, there is a context, there's a setting, there's a problem to be solved. And he got something random and then he looked for opportunities. And actually it took them a little while to figure out how to use that weak glue. So there was a moment where Mm -hmm. that innovation was needed. And so like you said, it's yes, I personally, I think that's almost in some ways the difference between creativity and innovation, although I don't know if that's accurate. Creativity is kind of a little bit random. Right. Whereas innovation, the way I think of it, is really achieving that leap. Right. This next clip is about outside-the-box thinking. Uh, And for people who are fans of, you know, reading business books or innovation books, they may be familiar uh, with this experiment. Have you ever wondered why it's so satisfying when you watch Jackie Chan pick up an umbrella or a ladder and use that to beat up on guys? That's because we're witnessing inventiveness and resourcefulness. And I always say there's no such thing as a lack of resources, only a lack of resourcefulness. I didn't make up that quote, by the way. I just say it a lot. So the human brain is built for efficiency, and that means that it will always take the easiest route to find the answer. This is where stereotypes come from. It's where overgeneralization comes from, because a lot of the time, stereotypes and overgeneralizations are accurate. For instance, if you see a lion, chances are it's not a friendly lion that's going to eat you. And the most efficient way of your brain uh, acting in that situation is to assume that that lion is just like all the rest of the lions and to run away. But as we know, this can sometimes lead to errors in judgment. And a particular example of that is called functional fixedness. This is a type of cognitive bias. So functional fixedness means that you can only think of a tool in the context of what that tool or item was originally designed for. It has a fixed functionality as far as you're concerned. So if you have a hammer, you're thinking this is used for driving nails into wood. It's not useful for anything else. And that, of course, means you might miss out on other possible uses for it. And this is perfectly demonstrated by a famous problem called the candle problem. In the candle problem, uh, participants are presented with a hammer, a box of tacks, and That's it. And they're told they need to attach the um, candle. So they're also presented with a candle. And they're told they need to attach the candle to the wall using the hammer and the box of tacks. And it needs to be able to burn and stay attached and light up the room. So what they'll normally do is take take the hammer, take the tacks, and try and drive the tacks through the candle into the wall so that the candle stays attached to the wall and lights up the room. Of course, this just breaks the candle. It won't work. And what they actually need to do is to empty the box of tacks use the box as a kind of shelf, nail that to the wall, and then stand the candle in the box. So in order to come to that conclusion, they've thought of that box of tacks as something other than just a box of tacks. They've thought of it as a shelf. They've overcome their functional fixedness. And this is the same kind of thing we see when Jackie Chan sees an umbrella and doesn't just see an umbrella, he sees something that he can fight with. So what can we learn from Jackie Chan and the famous candle experiment? Yes. So I loved this segment because I am a huge Jackie Chan fan. (laughs) And I never thought of it in that kind of a way before. Functional fixedness is pretty much the baseline for how I unlock people's thinking around innovation. And what's described in that clip is that 
your brain functions in seeing things as wholes and attributing common meaning to them. And that's good. That's how we think efficiently. That's how we survive in the world. That's how we don't get eaten by tigers, to use the analogy. But that limits how we are able to apply things. And so one of the most important and essential and kind of the core or base strategy for doing innovation work is to interrupt people's ideas about what is fixed in their scenario. And um, that is really something that for all of the various ideation techniques that I teach, that's kind of the core of what you're doing. And it's almost as simple as sometimes uh, when I do a two-day meeting, like for example, I just ran an innovation lab with a team that was working in Boston. And one of the things that I always force people to do is sit in a different chair the second day. Nice. Because believe it or not, humans are such incredible creatures of habit that even if they've never been in a space before, once they sit in that seat, they're going to sit in that seat again and again until you force them to sit someplace else. So innovation facilitators have all these little tricks to interrupt people's habitual way of interacting with their environment, interacting with people, and especially interacting with the product or service or problem that they're trying to solve. There are a couple of things that uh, are so fascinating about what you said. The, the first one being the fact that, you know, you have this thing like a candle or an object that Jackie Chan's using and they're innovating based on something that they already have. It's not some newfangled thing that came from outer space or someone invented it. They already have it. It's, it's, it's in the room. It's just expanding your mind, like you were saying about, you know, how you think about it. Um, and the other thing I love that you said about changing, you know, seats and your perspective. I just read an interesting book um, called How Your Body Knows Its Mind by Xi'an or Siam Belloc. Uh, and she talks about how our body can often inform how we feel and think about things. So even something as simple as where you're sitting, whether you're standing, whether you're using your right hand or your left hand, can um, have a, let's call it a surprising impact on what you think is like, oh, I'm a robot, I just think rationally. No matter, It doesn't, wouldn't matter if I'm standing in a blue room or a red room, I mean, I'm still going to make the same, you know, expert decision, but she shows in the book that we often are more impacted by such things uh, than we realize. Absolutely. And that's why good facilitators often use those kinds of physical tricks to help people move. Literally, I sometimes plan breaks around around how I'm going to get people up and down out of their chairs or how I'm going to literally get their energy up, make them move. Because like you said, your, your brain is, is one part, but your mind is actually inside your body. And mm-hmm. by moving your body differently, it actually generates different kinds of thinking. It's funny though, most people probably would not understand that or even realize what's happening when you suggest that. And they're like, oh, it, it's, everything seems so different. I wonder, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. 
Yes, it's it's great because you are you are playing with that fixedness without uh-huh. them even really without it being challenging for them. I think that's what's so fabulous about seeing Jackie Chan take a ladder and use it uh, to fight with people because you have that interruption of what you know to be true. And that creates a certain like charge and, and a feeling of, of joy and new possibilities. Yeah, I'm a huge Jackie Chan fan too. I'm not sure if anyone isn't. I mean, how can you not uh, enjoy those movies? So next up, it's really funny to me how new ideas can often seem crazy until everyone catches up to them and then they become the status quo and the standard and to do anything else seems like it would be crazy. There is an epidemic failure within the game to understand what is really happening. And this leads people who run Major League Baseball teams to misjudge their players and mismanage their teams. I apologize. Go on. Okay. People who run ball clubs, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. You're trying to replace Johnny Damon. The Boston Red Sox see Johnny Damon and they see a star who's worth seven and a half million dollars a year. When I see Johnny Damon, what I see is, is an imperfect understanding of where runs come from. The guy's got a great glove. He's a decent leadoff hitter. He can steal bases, but is he worth the seven and a half million dollars a year that the Boston Red Sox are paying him? No, no. Baseball thinking is medieval. They are asking all the wrong questions. And if I say it to anybody, I'm, I'm ostracized. I'm, I'm, I'm a leper, so that's why I'm, I'm cagey about this with you. That's why I, I respect you, Mr. Bean, and if you want full disclosure, I think it's a good thing that you got Damon off of your payroll. I think it opens up all kinds of interesting possibilities. Where are you from, Pete? Maryland. Where'd you go to school? Yale. I went to Yale. What'd you study? Economics. I studied economics. What's going on here, Kirsten? There's so many important concepts that are unrolled in that. As you said, this there was a certain standard way of thinking about baseball that that is being challenged with this. Mm -hmm. And it's the interpersonal dynamics between, between the two characters there that are so interesting to me because first of all, he says, baseball thinking is medieval. Love that. (laughs) And that is really speaking to the idea that our concepts, our understanding about about this whole industry is stuck in this historical baggage. And people don't tend to think about, let's say they're trying to innovate on new education products, or they're trying to innovate on 
new social services that they might be providing to help people. They tend to think of it within a historical and legal and all these frameworks that are completely invisible to them. Mm-hmm. So, so when you are approaching something, there is that fixed way that of, of looking at it. And what, he, what he's talking about in that video is breaking the functional fixedness of seeing players as wholes. So instead of seeing the player as a whole, he's pulling it apart and saying, what is it that you actually want to get out of a player? Mm-hmm. And he is isolating one element, which is the runs. Mm-hmm. And then he's saying, okay, if we just look at run production, how could you compare these different folks? And how could we increase the run production in order to increase the total value of the team apart from that character, that, that thing we've been buying as a whole? And that, that's exactly the kind of thinking you need to do to unlock and discover new assumptions. Once you, once you ask that kind of a question, suddenly there's different things you're looking at. There's different things you're considering. And there's different hypotheses that come up that you can test that you suddenly go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's take this totally different approach to building a, an amazing team. The other element that I love about that one is that sense of danger. Uh-huh. So they're having this conversation in almost like a little whispered thing <laughs> that's in the garage basement, right? And he, he speaks about, people doubt me about this. Like the, people think I'm crazy for this. There's an element of danger that he's speaking to that I think people need to be aware of when they start thinking about innovation. The people who are suggesting ideas they're not all the same. Our, our, we evaluate other people's ideas based on assumptions about who they are and what their, what their value is. And a lot of times, the folks who are going to give you the most valuable suggestions are the ones who have the least credit in the organization. You know, he, that character doesn't look like a baseball know-it-all guy, right? He got his degree in economics, so he's, he's not, he's a, he's a Harvard guy. He's not a, a cool ball ex ball player mm-hmm. who's weighing in on this. Right. So there is an element of danger to that person sticking their neck out and, and proposing a real different way of looking at the problem. And it was the person listening to him and encouraging him and giving him the space to share that radical way of thinking about it that actually creates the breakthrough there. So I love that one because he's, he's talking about full disclosure. He needs to, he needs to get, have full disclosure in order for that idea to even surface in the first place. One really powerful idea I'd like to pull out of what you just mentioned is you know, the danger aspect and the fact that when you have an establishment or an established way of doing things, innovation is often against their best interests in some ways because they may feel that it may make them irrelevant or it may make the skills that they have or the model that they have no longer useful. So, you know, I think it's kind of naive to think, wow, if I have a great idea, then everyone will love it and everyone will support me. In fact, history has shown both, you know, corporate as well, 
as historical that great ideas can often get you imprisoned or worse uh, because the powers that be, if, if they feel like it's a threat and, you know, they don't want their power structure to be upset, they're not playing. This is like a, a serious thing. So I think it's interesting to put innovation in that context, that it's not all sunshine and roses. If I innovate, I'll get a medal, I'll get an award. Sometimes you can actually, if you're not careful, um, you can get the short end of the stick with the innovation. Yeah. And I think what it requires of a great leader is to provide that sense that they are going to be, they are, it's a safe place to have that happen. And, and I think, you know, we were, we sort of started this by saying sometimes, uh, Hey, we want our organization to be more innovative, creates a bunch of eye rolling. That's because everybody's sort of saying, yeah, but last time I suggested my cool idea in a department meeting, it got shot down. Yes. People shut me down or, hey, you know, they didn't even try my idea or I was told to just do it the way that my manager wants me to do it. And so I think when leaders say we want our organization to be more innovative, they don't understand there's this fallacy that your people aren't creative, that your Mm -hmm. people aren't coming up with a bunch of ideas. Mm -hmm. And I teach ways to help people be more creative, come up with more ideas. So there are techniques and tools, but baseline, you have to understand they may very well be generating the ideas and you're not catching them. (laughs) Oh yeah. You're not, you're not inserting them where they need to help your organization make those jumps or make those leaps or make those breakthroughs. And there's real good reasons for that, you know? So it's not just creating ideas, it's also the receipt and the processing of the ideas by the people who have the power to implement them. It's not just, hey, we're not getting enough good ideas. That's why nothing's happening. Yeah. When Jeff and I were doing innovation work with the organization that we both worked for, Mm At some point, one of the major heads of the organization said to Jeff, how come we're only getting incremental innovation from all of this work? Uh And when Jeff shared that question with me later, I said, that's because the system is set up to only receive the incremental ideas. The actual radical ideas aren't funded. There's no teams put behind them. They're not connected to the organization's strategic plan. They're not supported. So you can't get radical innovation inside a structure that isn't ready for it. And so innovation becomes more of a problem of when do you want to innovate? Where do you want to innovate? What what specific problem are you, do you know you have to solve or, or would it make a big difference to solve? And then, then people's ideas can get into the mix. So, so acknowledging that element of danger is really critical for a leader to understand why people sometimes resist being more innovative. It's not because they're lazy or dumb or, or boring or not creative. It's because the systems and setup that you have right now is is suppressing them. I love that insight. Let's take a look at this next clip. 
which is an example of how innovation can really change lives in a meaningful way. Flight is an open source global movement. Under this movement, we use uh, recyclable, low cost, locally available material to provide lighting solution to the areas where there is no light, where the light will make difference to the lives of people. Very simple concept. It's just a pad bottle inserted in a roof. It's almost no cost, almost no maintenance, and it's such a simple thing. Where once they see us doing it, they can just by seeing they know that they can do it themselves. So what they are doing, they are taking a Pepsi bottle and they are putting water inside and they are you know, putting it in their roof. Here the water is acting as a medium. Lights travel from here, medium, it bends. Okay, then it will be refracted in 360 degrees in the room. What do you think, Kirsten? I love that example. When, when I teach innovation principles, there are some core repeating patterns you know so there's different ways of thinking about innovation you can think about sort of who are the innovation innovative people you could think about kind of where what what environment do we create to be more innovative but this particular video reminds me of a pattern you can actually look for patterns in the innovations themselves hmm. and I teach uh, five different patterns um, for innovation. And this example is an example of task unification. Okay, what's that? So that is when you look, you start with breaking functional fixedness. So you take the existing environment. You know how you were saying that what's so cool about Jackie Chan is that they're using the existing environment. You take the closed world of a particular scenario and you say, what elements in this, in this environment could be used for a new task? And you typically, if you were working with a group of people, you make a list of components and you have them go through one by one. What could this be used for? What could this be used for? What could this be used for? And in this case, they are using a piece of garbage, which is a used plastic bottle mm -hmm. and they're assigning it a new task and the new task they're assigning it is to provide light and and task unification is great in resource poor environments mm -hmm. because you already have a bunch of stuff but now giving it another task or giving it a new a new thing to do for you is mm -hmm. a way of creating new possibilities and in this particular case that project is so cool because in an environment where you're all indoors and there's no light that passes through when you have one of those pepsi bottles or any of those plastic bottles that is creating light it's no cost and it's it revolutionizes the ability to do productive work inside so people can read now people can um, get things done, they don't trip over things. It's, it's, it's an amazing innovation and from something very, very simple. And so when I help teams um, look for new ways of solving problems or look to improve their products, a lot of times I have them look at 
what is it, what are the elements in the environment that already there are there? So you could use the same Jackie Chan analogy. He's in a warehouse, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are many different things in the warehouse and the bad guys come up to him. All of a sudden, he is now employing different items that formerly were had a different task in that environment. And he's assigning them a new task, which is to knock somebody over the head with them or use it as a projectile or whatever. So I love task unification. It was funny when we were all trained as innovation coaches, the method that we were trained in was systematic inventive thinking. And there are five tools. And each of my compatriots who were other coaches kind of gravitated to different tools. Like Jeff really loves multiplication and Nancy really loves subtraction. My personal favorite is task unification because there's that delight and joy and excitement because you're you're unlocking something new with something you already have. Great. What is it they say, Kirsten, about necessity being the mother of invention? Here's a life or death situation inspired by real events. Gene, we have a situation brewing with the carbon dioxide. We had a CO2 filter problem on the lunar module. Five filters on the limb, which were meant for two guys for a day and a half. So I told the doctor. They're already up to eight on the gauges. Anything over 15, and you get paired judgment blackouts, the beginnings of brain asphyxia. What about the scrubbers on the command module? They take square cartridges. The ones on the limb are round. (laughs) Tell me this isn't a government operation. This just isn't a contingency we've remotely looked at. Those CO2 levels are going to be getting toxic. Well, I suggest you gentlemen invent a way to put a square peg in a round hole. Okay, people, listen up. People upstairs, handed us this one, and we got to come through. We got to find a way to make this fit into the hole for this, using nothing but that. Let's get it organized. Okay, okay, let's build a filter. Better get some coffee going, too, someone. So, Kirsten, what do you see here? I basically see an innovation lab right there. That is exactly what I do. you got a a very important problem that the organization knows it's got to solve, right? you got some people that you know you want on your team to do it, but I bet you anything he ran around collecting a whole mess more people to get involved, right? And then he is dumping the stuff on the table, the literal stuff. One of the things that really helps people imagine exactly what they need to do differently is literally seeing things as pieces. So there's this wonderful moment where he's taking a box of all the things that are inside the spaceship or the, um, and, and he's dumping them on the table and they're spilled out everywhere. And that's exactly how you break somebody's functional fixedness. Mm. You ask them to consider all of the parts separately and say, what could this be used for? So, and, and he's like, he gives a little pep talk as, as he's doing it. Okay, people, the folks upstairs have said that we're going to do this and let's get some coffee on and, and do it. And so when I 
run a lab with people. I literally have them bring the the product that they want to innovate on in the room and pull it all apart into its component pieces. Like literally consider the image and the packaging and exactly that thing that that the candle experiment is is having people do. You're dumping the tax out of the box. And that's what happened in this clip. They later go on to one of the important components that they wind up using to solve this square peg in a round hole filter problem is actually the the cover of the flight plan. They have them rip the cover of the flight plan. <laughs> like I would have thrown that in the garbage. It's like, we don't need this thing. This is useless. It's irrelevant. <laughs> right. It's, it's the, it's the, it's the, plastic bottle that's thrown away on the side of the road because now there's something new that that thing can do. And the key question that I ask people to think of is what could be useful about this? Mm. And, And a lot of times when you have people consider all of the various components inside of the thing that they're focused on, the one that seems ridiculous is often there's some, so I always, when people make a list of all the components inside of something and they get to something that by having many more of those or by assigning a new task to it or by eliminating it entirely, people think that's ridiculous and they all laugh. And I say, hey, wait a minute, that one actually we need to focus some time on because there's some juice there. There's some, that is where you're really flipping things on the head. If you get rid of that thing. Well, what I love about what you're saying here um, about pulling the things apart and and dumping the things on the table. To me, I see how context can really blind you. Right. So all those pieces, if they were being used in their individual components, then their minds would be locked. But because he just threw them out and they're all separate and, and your example is amazing, like telling them to deconstruct their, their their own object that they're trying to innovate, it sort of unlocks the context and you can think a little bit more broadly. But if I see something that's fully formed, it's like my mind has already in a way been locked into what it's currently doing. Yeah. And when I work with teams a lot of times you need to have innovation at these key windows. So part of what's going on is not just the, hey, we came up with a cool way to put a square peg in a round hole. It's a, we have something that we are committed to making happen. And it sort of loops back to the Steve Jobs thing. He, he was absolutely having people focus on that grandma in Nebraska and so the sense of urgency and purpose around rescuing, making sure that the astronauts don't die, right, gives everyone the freedom, the safety to unlock all those ideas and to focus together on a common problem and then actually go and implement it. And sometimes when they start working on it, and this is why prototyping and getting feedback and the implementation side of ideation that happens after your initial ideation is so important because sometimes it actually doesn't work too well and you have to fuss with it. So like I think later in that movie, they're having people fix stuff with duct tape, right? So it sort of worked and now 
that they're a little closer, they can see they need to add something else, or they can see that it that they need to make adjustments or tweaks. So a lot of times I tell teams, it's not the original idea you came up with. It's the adaptations that helped the group take something that was cool, but undoable into something that actually is feasible and will make sense for the organization financially or socially or whatever. So that, that process is, it's about buy-in and if people are going to die up in space, there's a lot of buy-in there, right? I think that's a great note to end on. Kirsten, it's been a real treat talking to you today about your expertise on innovation. Are there any updates or things that you're working on that you'd like to share with the audience? And how can people get in touch with you to learn more? I am thinking right now about how to help organizations move from one-off innovation into thinking about innovation as something that's part of a learning organization. So one of the things that Jeff and I are doing is writing a book on change and the, the actual whole process of change. So there are these moments, these windows where you actually need to make movements and having people sort of become a continuous learning organization is a key part of that. To get a hold of me, go to my website, rickertinnovation.com, which is R-I-C-H-E-R-T, innovation.com. Great. And I'll include that information on, in our show notes. Thank you, Kirsten, for sharing your insights on why it works. Thank you, Joe. Like Experiments and Discoveries, a great book to go with this podcast is How the Body Knows Its Mind by Sean Bellick. This book explores how the body-mind connection is more like a circuit than a one-way street. To receive a free copy of How the Body Knows Its Mind or another audiobook of your choice, just go to audibletrial.com slash whyitworks. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash whyitworks for your free audiobook. To support our show, please leave a rating or comment become a sponsor of why it works by going to www.patreon.com slash why it works that's www.patreon.com slash why it works thank you and remember the enemy of learning is boring Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joquan Joe coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joquanjo.com. And stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.